Uh, we're good. We don't have, I was going to say, if we have any kids, but we're good to go. So that's good. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to First Peter. We'll be in chapter 1. Well, we, we'll be where Peg just read. Uh, and as you do that, I'm going to talk to you about some identities that I have worn over my life, that I've had to wear, that have described me. So, uh, so one identity that I had was in college, I was a theater and music person. That was the thing that I was really into. So I, was, I, I got identified with the theater and music crowd in college. And, and so being a theater and music person, there, were, there, there was a certain code of conduct. Now, it, doesn't, it wasn't necessarily written down, this code of conduct. But, um, but it was assumed. And this is what was assumed as the theater and music person, something that we were to do. This is what we do. We welcome everyone as theater and music people. That's, that's kind of the, the base assumption that um, we're kind of, uh, we have this identity as the people who have been excluded. And so when we get in our groups, uh, and we get, we're the people who get made fun of, and so when we get in our groups, we, we don't make fun of people. We don't exclude people, but we welcome everyone who wants to be a part of us, right? That's kind of the assumption of a, a theater and music person. And to exclude, if you chose to exclude, what you were doing was you were violating your identity. So, uh, so I couldn't, I, uh, people would actually, like, that was the one thing that you would get called out for as a theater and music person was any time that you excluded others. Okay, so that's one identity. Uh, another identity that I actually had in college, I was in a fraternity. Now, before you get this weird idea about what kind of fraternity I was in, I would tell you it is like the most boring thing you've ever heard of. I was in a band fraternity, okay? So, uh, so I, uh, it was a service, a service organization. It was primarily focused on, on just uh, serving the music department in our, uh, you know, in, in, at our school. And so um, there was, we had to set ourselves apart, this identity that I had, we had to set ourselves apart from the other fraternities. Um, and so what, one of the rules that we had, and this was a written rule, this was a part of our code of conduct, was uh, we could not have any sort of alcohol in our colors. And if you know fraternities in college, that was a big deal. Um, uh, because uh, you're, you always associate fraternities with like drinking parties and these sorts of things. But our, our fraternity was to set itself apart and that, that's not what we do. That's not what we do here. Uh, but we're about something else, and we don't want to look bad like all of those other fraternities look, right? So, so to, to actually do that, to drink in colors or anything like that, was to violate our identity. Uh, another identity that I've worn. I am my grandfather's grandchild. Uh, and being my grandfather's grandchild uh, means that uh, there, there are a certain set of rules that come along with that. One of them is we keep our commitments. This was like ingrained into me as a kid, and um, I was frightened of my grandfather uh, because if I didn't keep my commitments. So, so one time I, uh, I actually I skipped school. Uh, I was I was pretty young. I pretended that I was sick, right? Because I, I really didn't want to go to school that day. And so my grandfather found out that I pretended that I played hooky, and uh, and he was angry with me. He was like, we, you are a part of this family, and you do not do this. This is not something that is acceptable for somebody who is a part of this family, right? He really made sure that I was aware that this, is, this should not describe us. That's an identity piece that comes along with being my grandfather's grandchild. And then finally, I, I am my father's child. So uh, being my father's child, uh, my, my dad always told me, like when we would do work around the yard and work around the house, and, and I would... Um, in, in this work sometimes, I would really not want to do it. I would not want to do my chores. I would not want to be particularly helpful. And so I would, uh, I, I would kind of be lazy in, in what I would do. I would take my time. So say, uh, say we have to, to clean the yard up and I have to pick up sticks, right? So, so I'd walk, I'd mope around the yard and you know, pick up my stick and put it in my bucket and pick up another stick, right? And, uh, and my father would tell me when he sees me doing this, he would tell me, listen, to be a part of this family, everything we do, we do 100%. And if a job is not worth doing, if, if you don't do a job 100%, it's not even worth doing. If you're not going to give your full to something, it's not even worth giving anything at all. Like, that's what he would tell me. And so, a code of conduct here, what it means to be a part of this family is that we actually work really, really hard when we choose to do something. And if you're not going to work really, really hard, why is it even worth doing it, right? So, 
So um, this, the, the implication is, all of these identities, it, it, the implication is, because this is who you are, this is your identity, these are all the things that you do because of it. This is who you're called to be. There are a certain set of things that you do and don't do. And so all of the identities that we have, we get reminded, hey, with those identities, hey, this is who you are, be who you are. This is who you are, be who you are. All of these identities have some, uh, some code of conduct, something that says, hey, this is what it means to be here. So now, some of these identities of mine have changed over the years. So I'm no longer in my college fraternity. I'm no longer uh, a, a college theater and music person, right? So, so some of those identities change, but some of those identities are not changeable at all. So, uh, you know what? I will always be Kenny and Teresa Culpepper's son. Like, I, uh, I will always be Caucasian. I will always uh, be from Warsaw, Illinois. I will always have one brother. Like all of these things, uh, you cannot change these things about me. There's nothing you can do to alter this truth, these truths of who I am. These are like base to me. And so, so you know what? No matter what changes in my life, and some pretty massive things have changed in my life. You know, I got married. Uh, I became a pastor. I, uh, I went to a different school. You know, like massive things have changed. But... But no matter those changes, like this thing, like the fact that I am my parents' child cannot change about me. Nothing can actually change that reality. Um, and so, I mean, the same is true with, with many of you. I mean, Linnea, Linnea, you are always going to be Dave and Lynn's daughter. Like, that's, that's just absolutely true. That's, like, you can't, you can't do anything to alter this. And, and so I talk about that because last week, Peter, he, he wrote, he's writing to these exiled Christians. And last week we talked about what is unchangeable about who they are. What cannot be changed about who they are? So uh, this is what it says in 1 Peter 1.3. It says, according to his, that is God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He gave us a new family. So this is, this is what it's saying. This is the implication. If we trust in and follow Jesus, this is what's true about us. We get to become a part of a new family. We have a new family that describes us. And, and there's no behavior that we have. There's no set of actions that we perform to become a part of that family. We simply place our trust in Jesus. And Jesus does all the work. He goes to the cross on our behalf. He defines us. He gives us a new identity. He gives us favor and acceptance with God. And so it's like you can't do anything to give birth to yourself. No, Jesus makes us born again, right? All of a sudden, we get a new, unchangeable identity. Something new is true about us. And so what comes along with that? Well, last week we saw that we get a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that we get a certain inheritance, that, that nothing can actually take that inheritance away, that it's, it's in some ways even more real than the things that we can feel and touch and kick, right? Uh, and, and on top of that, we get a salvation. Like, we get a salvation, and that salvation is guaranteed to us. That salvation is certain for us. And so it's all saying, hey, since you have been born, you've been born into God's family, born again. This is your forever identity and all the promises that come with it. It supersedes every identity that you have. Uh, it, it, takes, oh, it takes priority over everything. And this is kind of the idea that, that Peter gives. And then this is what he does. He moves beyond the discussion of identity and he moves in, into uh, the promises that result from that identity. So this is what he does. In, in uh, verses uh, 113 through 2-3, he kind of does two things. This is the first thing that he does. He keeps reminding them of their identity. So I, I don't know if you heard it when Peg read the passage, but all the way through that passage, there are all of these reminders. It's like he keeps coming back and coming back again and coming back again to exactly what their identity is in Christ because he wants to make sure that they are very aware of it. And then this is what he does as well in this passage. He basically, he gives some family values. Uh, some, some behaviors, some actions that come in light of the identity that we have in Christ. So, uh, so this passage that we have this morning is actually a really big passage, and we're going to do things a little differently uh, than we typically would. Typically what we would do is we would kind of walk verse by verse through the passage, but because this passage is so massive, we're actually going to break it down into 
uh, two chunks, and, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to look right now. I just want to take a look at all the things that Peter says in this passage about who we are. Every time he grounds our identity, and then after that, we're really going to dig into the, the values that he puts forward, the behaviors that he calls for. So here are all the things that Peter says about who we are. So, so if you trust in Jesus, here are some realities, unchangeable realities about your identity. So you are recipients of grace when Jesus comes back. He talks about that in verse 113. You are children of the Father. 114 through 17 is all about your identity as God's children. You are ransomed, which means you're, you're bought for a high price. Uh, verse 118, he talks about that. You are believers in God, verse 121. You are people who hope in God. Uh, we are pure in our souls. We are purifying our souls, verse uh, 122. We are born again. He hits it again. He, he's already said that once. He, he reminds us again, verse 123, we are born again. Uh, he reminds us that the gospel that we believe in, this thing that we believe, will never fade. Nothing will change about it. It will remain forever. Uh, and then finally in verse 2-3, he's saying, uh, we are those who have tasted God's goodness. That when we place our trust in Jesus, the goodness of God becomes revealed to us in such a clear way because a relationship that we could never regain with God has been bought for us in Jesus. We have tasted God's goodness in Jesus. So then, uh, so then those, that's everything that it says about identity. This is who you are. That's what the passage has to say. So now what we're going to do is we're actually going to dig into these values that, that Peter f- puts forward, these behavioral actions that he calls us towards. So we're going to take a look at the first kind of protocol that comes with this identity. This is the first value that Peter gives us. We operate with a hopeful, clear-headedness. And if you're taking notes, this is point number one in your notes. So, uh, so verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. So, so Peter's first protocol, what he's first and, and most primarily concerned with is their mindset. He's concerned with what they're choosing to dwell on, where their minds are going, what they're giving their time and attention towards, what, how their minds are occupied, right? So apparently, in the middle of difficult circumstances, because Peter's audience is in the middle of a really difficult circumstance— in the middle of these difficult circumstances, uh, it's actually pretty important where your mind goes. Like, mindset actually could impact a lot of things. And so, so Peter's really aware of two ways that the persecution that they're facing, the difficulties that they're facing, he's aware of two ways that these things will endanger their mindset. The first way is this. Uh, they will want to run towards distraction. We could call this narcotizing. Narcotizing. So we typically think of this in relation to narcotics, right? Uh, drugs that are in, in, intended, they, they make us not feel, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's what's going on. You take pain drugs, opioids, and all of these things. What they, the, the intention is to make you not feel pain. So, so narcotizing is this, to soothe to unconsciousness or unawareness, right? So let's be real. Uh, we don't just narcotize with drugs, we narcotize with a whole host of things. Like we work so hard to make ourselves forget the difficult realities that we face. We, we, we work so hard to make ourselves forget the pain that we have inside of our hearts. We work so hard to, to ignore uh, the things that are so clear to us that God is actually trying to make known to us, right? We find, uh, maybe, maybe we throw ourselves at social media for a little bit. You know, I could, I could, throw away two hours on social media and ignore a whole lot of stuff that's going on inside of me, right? Uh, uh, maybe uh, it's interruptions that come our way, and we just, we take every opportunity to seize those interruptions because they know they're going to distract us from the thing that we really need to address. Maybe it's text messaging or, or blog posts. Maybe we just love really, reading really good articles, and we spend a lot of time reading really good articles, and what that means is we're spending so much time reading that that we never address what's going on inside. Maybe it's gaming. Maybe it's busy work. Maybe it's TV shows. Like, it doesn't matter what it is, but we throw ourselves into these things often so that we can just find some way to ignore the things that God clearly wants us to address, the the things that God wants us to be aware of. And so these are all called distractions, right? Not saying that any of those things on their own is, is, uh, are wrong or, or bad, right? 
But, but at the end of the day, like, if we give them the place in, their, in our hearts that they should not have, what they do is they distract us. And ultimately, they take our eyes off the hope. And, and when things get hard, when things get rough, the temptation is going to be, I want to pretend like this isn't happening to me. Right? So I'm going to throw myself towards distractions so I don't have to deal with the difficulty. And he's saying, no, don't, don't let distractions take place inside of you, but, but set your mind on hope. And this is what he means when he says, preparing your minds for action. This is what he's saying. He's saying, get rid of the distractions. Literally, what the, the, the word says that he's saying is, he's saying, uh, you need to gird up the loins of your mind, which is a really weird saying, but let me explain. So, uh, so people, in, uh, in the time that Peter was writing in, they would often wear robes. Guys would wear robes, and, and uh, you could not move fast if you were wearing a robe. And so what you had to do was you actually had to bend down low and pick up the, the, ta- the, the bottom of your robe, and you would have to kind of tuck it into your belt. And this is called girding up your loins, because you had to get the robe out of your way so you could actually run fast. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying you have to get these distractions, these things that are in the way of your mind, these things that that are halting you from from seizing this hope that is yours, you have to get them out of the way. And then he says, uh, being sober-minded. So the second thing, the second temptation that they will have in difficulty and persecution is this. They will be tempted to panic. Okay, so this is kind of like Chicken Little, right? The sky is falling, right? Uh, And then you get really worried about the sky falling. Like the acorn hits you on the head from the tree, and all of a sudden you think like the world's falling apart, right? And this, this uh, Peter's saying, he's saying, we don't, uh, we don't get, we don't get under the control of our emotions. We don't let our emotions determine our actions. We don't, we try to keep our thoughts under our own control. And, And this is what panic is. Panic allows intense emotion to control our thoughts in our actions. You know, so, so emotions do have value. Uh, I grew up in a church where I was just taught emotions were completely valueless, right? Uh, but, but emotions actually do have value for us, right? Because they're great indicators of what's going on inside our hearts, right? Uh, emotions are really good windows into our soul. Emotions are like, like the lights, that flash on your dashboard to tell you, hey, you need to change your oil, like mine says right now. Or, uh, hey, you need, to, you need to get your tires rotated. Or, uh, you know, any of that stuff. Like, the, the emotions are like these lights, the, these indicators, but they're really, really bad drivers. Like, those lights could never drive my car. They would be awful at it, right? We don't let emotions, we don't give emotions the driver's seat, but we acknowledge that they have value for what they are. So, so these things like fear, anger, sadness, and betrayal, they... You, you know, they can work so hard that they can actually create a false perception of the world. That, that they, they actually alter, they become like the glasses that we see the world through. That, um, that they alter reality in some ways. Where it's so interesting, you talk to two people, one who, one who has kind of got their emotions under control and one who doesn't, and you ask them to describe a situation to you, and they will describe to you two very different situations because one of those people has allowed emotions to cloud their perspective of something, right? So, so we, we don't let emotions control our thoughts. You know, emotions have their place, but, but when they rule over us, they end up altering our, our view of reality. They end up altering our actions, Right? And Peter looks at these two dangers and says, hey, Christians, that's not who you are. This is not who we are. This is not who we are called to be, but you need to be who you are. So he says, prepare your minds for action. Get the obstacles out of the way. He says, be sober-minded. Keep your, keep your thinking under control. You know, uh, so guys, you know, guys typically say, we like to say something like, oh, I'm not that emotional. I'm not controlled by your emotions. Yeah, I'm, I've got my emotions under control. You know, that's, you know, so, anger's an emotion, guys. Can we, can we be honest about that? Anger's an emotion, and anger takes control of us sometimes, and anger can honestly be that lens through which we see the world. Anger can alter our perceptions of everything, and so, uh, so everybody is subject to be a victim of this, this mentality where we let emotions control our perspective, but, but no, Scripture calls us to be sober-minded. And apparently when you do these two things, when you are sober-minded, when you get these distractions out of the way, they enable you to do something that is crucial for the Christian mindset in the midst of any sort of difficulty, which is this, we set our hope on Jesus. So when we clear those things out of the way, it enables us to actually, it creates space for us to put Jesus into 
and to keep setting our hopes on Jesus and keep setting our hopes on the things that he has promised us. It makes a pathway for the mind to be occupied with hope. And, and that's what it says when it goes on in for, verse 13. Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so this is what this means. Our identity, this identity that we get, it comes with a new way of thinking. We had an old way of thinking, but now we have a new way of thinking. We have something new for our minds to be occupied with. We have a new fascination to be fixated on. Our minds have a new dwelling place, and, and that dwelling place is this. We who were once condemned to eternal judgment for our sin now have eternal peace with God. We who were once separated from each other by, by language barriers and ethnic barriers and national barriers, you know what? Jesus has done something to make us united in him. We who once stood ashamed before God because of our sin, you know what? Now we're accepted before God because of the cross. We who were once afraid of death, who had to stand in fear of death, now we actually, we can look at death and approach it in a hopeful manner because of what Jesus has done for us. We uh, once lived in a world with broken systems, but we're actually promised a new coming world with new systems where all that is wrong with the world will be done away with. God's going to make everything new and right in our world, that we'll spend eternity with the Jesus who saved us, that everything that is good about God is actually going to be manifest in the world. Like, this is the hope that we are, have been promised, and that hope is so full of all of these things that God has accomplished and will be accomplishing. And these are real and, and guaranteed promises. Like, nothing can change the truth of these things. And so, so I say that, like, this is why I care, and this is why we've talked about, like, having a re regular daily relationship with Scripture. Because you know what? When you clear those spaces out of your mind, when you clear out those distractions, when you, you try to get your thinking under control, it creates space for Scripture to actually inform your thinking. Uh, it creates space for you to have your hope set on Jesus, right? This is why I care about us as a congregation having a prayer life together and you as an individual having some sort of prayer life because in that moment what you're doing is you're, you're setting aside that space in your mind and you're creating space for, for Jesus to set your hope on him. This is why I care about spiritual disciplines. This is why I care about us worshiping together week in and week out because what we're doing is we're going to clear out the space for distractions and we're going to come here and we're going to allow Jesus to collectively set our hope on him. So we don't do these things because they, they save us. We don't do these things because they give us some sort of promise, but we do these things because of the people they turn us into, because of how they shape us, what they actually do to us. They help us to settle into this new way of thinking that Peter's calling us towards. Because our mindset, it actually has a lot to do with us being who God says we are. So that's the first value. The first value is, is being clear-headed, being uh, hopefully clear-headed. The second value is this. We accept our fundamental difference. So verse 14 goes on and says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the word holy is used a lot in Scripture, and so we need to clarify exactly what it means. To be holy is literally to be set apart. So, so uh, to be set apart, we could think of it like this. It's, it's to be fundamentally different than the world around us. For us to be set apart is to be fundamentally different from the world around us. So when uh, the Bible actually talks about God being holy, and when the Bible says that God is holy, what it's saying is that God is fundamentally different than the rest of the world. Like in some key aspect, there's something about him that, that is way different than the way the rest of the world functions. And this is what he intends for his people, and we see this all throughout Scripture. This is not just a command given in the New Testament. He gives this command all over the place. He says, you be holy, for I am holy. He intends his people all the time to be fundamentally different than the world around them. So let's talk about the, what that fundamental difference looks like. This is the key uh, protocol by which the world operates. It is this, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You know that fraternity I told you about earlier? This line was in like one of our uh, induction proceedings in this, and I couldn't say it. I can't, like, how, how can I say these words? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. How arrogant is it to say this, that, that I have determination over my existence, that I am in control of everything, that, that who cares whatever anybody else has to say? I am the master of my fate. 
I am the captain of my soul. But this is the protocol by which the rest of the world operates. I get to make determinations for myself. But you know what? Christians, we operate in a different way. We have a different protocol. Every action that we take actually emphasizes our difference from this. Every action is an indication of who bought us, of whose we are. Every action displays to the world around us who we belong to. And so God calls us to be compellingly different from the rest of the world. So let me just say something. Christians are a little bit weird. Like, we're, all, we're okay with that. Okay, good. We're good. Yes, absolutely. Christians are supposed to be a little bit weird. Like, the world should look at us and go, okay, that's a little strange. Like, we believe, we believe, we place everything, we bank everything on a guy we think rose from the dead. Like, how insane is it? We don't see people rise from the dead all the time, but we bank everything on that. And you know what? We believe that he is coming back, and he's going to have, like, a flaming sword coming out of his mouth, right? This is insane. Like, the things that we believe, the things that Scripture says, it's, it's nuts, but these are, like, so we're a little bit weird. Like, the, what, the things that we do, the things we say, the things that we believe, it's not going to match the rest of the world. And you know what? That's okay. So what does this, what does this weirdness really look like? So, so generally, it looks like this. We obey God's commands, and the world obeys their preferences. So that's, like, that's the key difference. The key difference is I get to decide versus God gets to decide. So I get to decide vers- what, what to do with my time versus God gets to decide what to do with my time. I get to decide what to do with my money versus God gets to decide what to do with my money. I get to decide with my relationships or, or my skills or my gifts or, or the words that I use. I get to desi- decide those things or, or does God get to decide those things? Right? So, so that's the worldly protocol versus our protocol, which is God's in charge. Right? Like when we come to Jesus, we're acknowledging that we are weak, that we have no solution inside of ourselves, that we can do nothing about our fate, but then Jesus offers us a restored relationship with God. So in coming to that restored relationship, what we say is, God, guess what? We have to acknowledge that we're not in charge, and you are. You are in charge. So, so why does Peter emphasize this when he's writing to people in the midst of difficulty? Why he's, These people are facing a lot of challenges. Why does he come on and, and say, hey, it's really important that you are holy, that you are set apart from the rest of the world, that you allow God to dictate the decisions that you're going to make. And this is not, by the way, this is not just for those who are facing challenges. This is for every Christian. This is why he says it, though. It's going to be most tempting for you to give ground on holiness when people start challenging you for your holiness. Because they will. You know, your holiness actually... When we are holy, when we do the things that God calls us to do, it actually creates a little bit of disruption in the world around us. So uh, you see this clearly. I, we'll, tell, we'll look at the book of Acts. There's a story in the book of Acts that, that really exemplifies this with clarity. Acts 19, verses 23. It goes all the way through 29, and so we'll just read the story, and I'll explain it as we go. Verse 23 says, And, and about that time there arose no little disturbance, concerning the way. The way is the people who are following Jesus. That's the name that it got coined with there in the, the first century. There arose no little disturbance for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis is a, uh, an idol or a god in uh, the town of Ephesus. There's a temple to Artemis in the middle of Ephesus. People come from around to Ephesus so that they can worship Artemis. Um, and brought no little business to the craftsmen. So then verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So apparently these Christians are doing something that's disrupting the livelihood of the people in the area. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. That's the holiness piece. That's the piece that's different. That's the piece that says, you know what? We're not going to craft our gods with our hands, but we submit to a God who is greater than us, right? This is what Paul has said, and this is what he's told to the people. When you come to Jesus, this is what it means to be holy. We leave our old gods behind, and we, we worship the God that we can't see with our eyes, right? So then, uh, so, so it's creating some problems for these people, and then, and then verse 27, and there is danger. 
he's telling these, these other craftsmen, he's saying there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, and she was indeed deposed, uh, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So there, he's like trying to rile these people up. He's saying these, these Christians are disturbing our way of life. The way that they're choosing to live, their, their choice of holiness is disturbing things. And so you know what they did in verse 28 and 29 when they heard this? They were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and uh, the Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. All of these people are freaking out because what the Christians have done in their holiness is they have disturbed the way of operation in the city of Ephesus. And it's really bothersome. And, and what they want, what these, uh, these craftsmen want, is they want these Christians to stop following one God alone and keep following Artemis, right? Because that's how they make their money. But Christians can't do it. And Christians don't give way. And Paul doesn't give way on this issue. And so... Uh, think, of, think of this today. You know what? Some churches, some Christians think that the solution is when things get tense between our culture and our church, what we need to do is we need to adjust the beliefs of our church. We need to, uh, to read the Bible a different way. We need to adjust the moral standards into a different sort of sphere so we can create space for more people because our difference is creating tension. But, but this seems to imply that our difference is made to create tension. So be holy. Be holy. Do the things that God called you to do. And you know what? It's going to look a little weird. And you know what? It might even create some disturbance in the world around you. But that's what God intends for, for it to happen. So uh, a little caveat. Holiness gets a bad rap today in just the language that we use because you hear the word holier than thou. Oh, you're, you're so holier than thou, right? So, um, so I, I do, like, I believe it's valuable to call out this thing that, like, um, the people who play this holier-than-thou game, who, uh, they're playing a game of comparison. So, um, so when Christians sometimes go around and say, you know what, you should be more like me because I do these things and I have my life together in this way and, and you know, it'd be really valuable. If you were more like me, your life would be a lot better. And you know what, that's not holiness. When you call somebody to that, you know, because what our holiness, our holiness standard is not comparison to other people. Our holiness standard is God, right? And we all fall short of that, right? So what we do when we call people to holiness, we don't call people to be like us. We call people to be like Jesus. That's the thing that we call them towards, right? So we just, we just need to be really careful when, when we live our lives in a holy way, that we're not doing it to set ourselves up above other people, to, to try to impress people or make ourselves look God. We are humbly following God the whole way. And if we're humbly following God the whole way, we have no place for a sense of pride in our holiness. But we are simply always looking to his standard of holiness. Okay, verse 17 goes on and it says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exiles. So when he says judge, uh, our temptation is going to be to read that as condemn. We, uh, because that's just typically the way we read it. Judge equals condemn. And actually the word here indicates he's like evaluating. God is looking at deeds and he is evaluating deeds and he's making determinations about deeds. And so he's not saying, hey, Christian, God is just waiting for you to mess up so he can like burn you up, right? That's not what he's saying. He's not like waiting on his toes to see how you fall by the wayside so that he can make sure that like he smokes you. No, that's not. It's, it's, he's, he wants to acknowledge. You know what? We know an answer to someone who is always aware of our actions, who is actually concerned with us being in alignment with his heart. Like these are the things that God cares about and God is very aware of what's going on. And you know why the rest of the world lives as if they're not aware? God is very aware. And so, you know, you can't, as, as a Christian, you're gonna have a hard time living your life on the fence for long. 
like living with one foot in the world and one foot in the church or whatever it is, like whatever your metaphor for that is. And I tried to do it for a long time and God would not let me stay there. This is what he's saying. He's saying, this is who you are. You're God's kids now. So be God's kids. Live your life in accordance with God's family. Be who you are. Live like God is your dad. This is who you are. Be who you are. This is what he keeps reminding them of. Okay, so that's, that's uh, the second family value. It's all about holiness. It's all about uh, accepting what is fundamentally different about us. Number three, we clean house. Verse 22 says this. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So guess what? Our hearts, when we come to Jesus, are incredibly broken. Uh, they are falling apart. They have the stain of sin on them. And yes, Jesus gives us forgiveness from that sin, but we still have a fleshly nature. We have a broken aspect to the ways that we relate to each other, the ways that we relate to God. And so the gospel, what we're told is that the gospel, when we trust in Jesus, Jesus gives a new heart, gives us a new heart. The Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us. But then what happens is that starts to work itself out in our lives. So we practice community with each other. We share life with one another. We invite correction from our brothers and sisters. We encourage one another. We give to support the mission of the church. We, uh, we let the gospel kind of do an overhaul on all of our previously warped ways of operating in the world, right? And so, so this, these good things start to work themselves out in our life. And so when he's talking about having purified your souls and working from a pure heart, he's saying, listen, there's some work to be done on your heart. And once you trust in Jesus, God starts working that process out in your life. And so 2-1, he, he, he describes with clarity kind of what this looks like in verse two, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So, so he's saying, what were your previous ways of relating? All the broken ways that you related to people. It's malice, it's deceit, it's hypocrisy, envy, slander. And, and these words, like even think about these words. These words move beyond mere action. They're not just about actions primarily, but they actually move to the position of your heart. These words move into the position, like what is, what's the, the state of your heart in the midst of doing these things? So, so uh, you might hear me saying clean house, which might sound like, hey, um, you get saved, and then what you do is you start tweaking your little actions here and there. Uh, get saved and start tweaking actions. So, so, hey, you get saved and then you maybe like swear less. And then uh, maybe you pray more than you used to. And maybe you give some more money and maybe you be nicer. Like get your salvation and then start making these little tweaks. And, and those, those little tweaks, like don't get me wrong, those little tweaks are valuable, but those are all sort of surface level types of things. They're, they're adjustments that, that we're making. And, and when I say clean house, what I actually mean is that we walk with Jesus into the dark places of our heart, the places that are incredibly broken, and we let Jesus point out the things that he desires to fix deep down inside of us about our motivations, about the things, the things that, uh, we, the, that even make the decisions for us, that would incline us to desire the, those wrong things that we do, right? We let him start to change our heart. The Bible actually says, uh, the, the Bible calls this the flesh, this old nature of ours. And the Bible actually says, this is what we do to the flesh. We crucify it. We kill it. We die to ourselves. We, so whenever we go after, when we have in our hearts self-promotion or deep pride, um, we, we attack the fear that might exist inside of us that isn't fear of the Lord. Uh, so, so these simple attempts that we choose to go after, maybe to alter our behavior, they're important. But here's the truth that like, we just all need to be aware of. All of our behavior has roots. And those roots all tell us something really, really deep about our heart. And so you know what? Um, uh, I have, in my backyard, you're all going to be so disappointed in me. I have so many weeds in my backyard. I know. I know. I can't, like, I've not done a good job of taking care of my backyard. My neighbors are probably just, they're looking at these weeds growing all the time. And so you know what I do? I mow my yard. I mow my yard, and I roll right over the top of the weeds. And you know what? My yard looks really good for, like, two days. 
two days, and then the weeds come back, right? Because I'm just kind of rolling over the top of the problem. I'm kind of fixing the service level issue. Like, the real solution is to, like, call True Green or somebody and have them come out and spray my lawn and, like, take care of it, right? But I have not done that, and so I'm choosing not to address the root issue, but I'm kind of fixing the surface level things. And so when, when the, uh, this passage is talking about malice, it's not just talking about, hey, you just need to be nicer to people, like be nice, because that's like a surface level adjustment. Hey, just be a little bit nicer. But it's actually saying, you know what? Your little outbursts of anger are indicative of hate in your heart for another person. Like that's what malice is about. And you know what? We all come to Jesus with some level of malice in our heart. We all have some sort of thing that is frustrated with other people, that is actually hateful to other people. When other people would do something to like move us aside or whatever, we choose, we, we opt for hate. I think it's especially true when any of us drive in this area. Like, we, malice is in my heart. I tell you, when, and I, Jesus needs to do a work on that, because it is just like not a good thing, right? So, so malice is indicative, and, and he doesn't like want to let malice just stay there. He doesn't just want to like roll over the top of it, but he wants to dig it out. He actually wants to kill it. Uh, deceit. So this is not just like telling little white lies. It's not like, but this is this is attacking the pride that keeps you from living with and accepting and even speaking the truth to yourself, right? So remember what I talked about before when, when we let anger or frustration like uh, uh, kind of give us a lens through which we see the world? Well, those people begin to deceive themselves, right? And, and so when deceit exists inside of a person, what it really is is I'm accepting my version of the truth versus God's version of the truth. Right? I'm elevating myself above God. There's a deep, deep root there that runs inside the heart of a person. Hypocrisy. That's, that's really just trying to be or, or showing yourself to be somebody that you're not. Trying to be somebody that you're not. So instead of accepting the person that Jesus has already paid for on the cross with his blood and, and acknowledging that you're just like the rest of us, uh, you, uh, what happens is that, that you elevate yourself in some way. You try to be more impressive than, uh, than you really have to be because you can't accept the person that Jesus has already accepted. And so with all of these things, and envy and slander, all of these things, he's saying these, these are not just surface-level things, but they have deep, deep roots. And Jesus is not just interested in rolling over the top of the weeds, but he's interested in pulling things up by the root. And honestly, like he, goes, he says envy and slander at the end. He, the list could keep going of all the things that, all the behaviors that work their, themselves out in our life that actually have deep, deep roots, roots in our heart. And Peter looks at these things and he says, listen, that's not who you are now. That's not what should describe you now. Be who you are. Put these things away. Dig out the roots. So uh, yesterday morning, we actually were, we just had a, um, at Wise Guys, we had a really good conversation about just the work um, one of our brothers just shared with us the work that God has done in his heart over the, over the years. That he used to, and he, he still, like, can be inclined towards anger, right? But, but that he actually could look at his heart and look at the way he's responded in situations and say, the Lord has really been working on the roots of anger in his heart. Has really done an amazing work of sanctification in his life to, to, to he, he, he's not as angry as he used to be, right? He, the, the Lord has given him more space for patience with people more space to understand people, right? So that's an amazing thing. And this is, this is the work that Jesus is about, is digging out these roots. So verse two says this. It says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So this is what pure spiritual milk is. It is the simple gospel. The simple gospel. And you don't stop preaching it to yourself. The, the gospel is just not a tool by which we get saved, it is the very foundation through which we carry out the Christian life, right? So I, I want to talk to you about what the simple gospel is, uh, because I think uh, just the word gospel gets thrown around, and there's a lack of clarity. So, so it is the story of Scripture, and that story, uh, you could conceptualize it with a lot of parts. I conceptualize it with four. You have creation. God created the world as good, and it was good. Like, the, the world was originally very, very good. And then you have the fall. So, so what happened is humans come along and, and we decide that we want our ways, we corrupt creation, we corrupted what God made 
good, right? And so that, that creates some issues between us and God, right? So we actually have a, God said, if you corrupt it, if you do what I tell you not to do, you will surely die, right? And that's, that's physical death, that's spiritual death, that is a uh, severance in our relationship with God. And there's actually nothing we can do about that severance in our relationship because we have chosen corruption over good. And so the, the third piece of this story is that Jesus came. Jesus came and he actually repairs this broken relationship. And the only way he can do it is by sacrificing himself on the cross by his blood. He creates the means of forgiveness so that we can have a restored relationship with God, so that we can actually come before God and not have to be fearful of what he's going to do to us, but that we can actually just live in relationship with him as a, as a father who cares about us. And then the last piece is new creation. So we're given a promise as well when we come to Jesus that, that Jesus is actually going to pr- repair all that is broken with creation that he's actually going to make a new creation. And we can look at around in our world, we look at politics, we look at all the discussions that are happening today, we, we even look on social media for like two minutes, and we can affirm wholeheartedly that this world and its systems are broken. And what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to come out and wipe out all the old systems, and he is going to restore goodness in the world. That is the gospel. Right? And so we don't stop reminding ourselves of the gospel. We don't stop drinking the pure spiritual milk. There's another Bible verse somewhere that says, hey, it's come time for you to move beyond milk and into meat. That doesn't mean you stop giving yourselves the milk. The milk is like the foundation. You keep drinking it. Like a child when they're born, and I know this because I have a one-year-old daughter, and she is drinking milk all the time. Like that's all she can have, right? And so we don't stop being those children. We still let that form the foundation of who we are. We might move beyond, but we never, never let go of the pure spiritual milk. So let's talk about sin real quick, because check one, two, there we go. Yep. Uh, so, so we're going to talk about sin real quick. Sin, at its core, what it is, is a rejection of God's authority. And so then his grace to us through Jesus actually brings us back into alignment with God and his authority. That's, that's kind of the experience we get. So when we start seeing sin raise its head in our lives, this is what we do. We preach the gospel to it. And that's why, that's why we're even talking about sin. So, so anger. What does anger do? Anger elevates us as judges. We, we acknowledge that God is the only judge, but then we decide that we want to be judges. So we elevate ourselves above God in our anger. And you know what? Jesus had every right to be angry with us, but what he did instead is that he loved us and died on the cross for us in order to break the power of anger over our life. Right? So, so we preach the gospel to that sin. How about... Uh, lust. And lust is not just a, a sexual thing. Lust is wanting to get something that you think belongs to you. So we act as people who are entitled. We think that we're entitled. So God God is the most entitled person in all of the, all the whole world, right? He owns everything. It all belongs to him. But you know what? We, says, we say well, we think it belongs to us. So, so then Jesus came and Jesus literally like was entitled. It all should have belonged to him. But you know what? He loved us and gave himself for us and died on the cross for us that we could be invited into a relationship with God. Anxiety and insecurity. And what that is is you're fearing something else greater than you're fearing God. And you know what? Jesus, he lived an uncertain life and he died a death that he did not deserve. And the whole way he was simply submitted to to his father because his fear of his father was greater than anything that anybody in the whole world could bring against him. How about laziness? Laziness is at its core a denial of responsibility. So in creation, God gave human beings responsibility. They gave them a a job to do, right? He says, this is your land. You need to tend this. You need to work it. You need to take care of it. And so in laziness, you deny responsibility for what God has called you to do, right? You know what? Jesus didn't want responsibility for our sins. He stood there with the Father. He said, Father, if you would take this cup of your wrath from me, then please take it. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So he took that sin 
and he bore it in his body on the cross so that he might be able to break the power of laziness over your life. Right? We preach, we don't let just, just let sin sit, but we preach the gospel to it. We don't stop drinking the pure spiritual milk. Okay, so that's, that's the last value. So, so what? So what? So we have, I have three questions that you just need to answer honestly for yourself in evaluation. These three questions. Number one, uh, so the value was be clear-headed. So, so the question is, what's distracting you from your hope in Christ? What is distracting you from your hope in Christ? Evaluate that. And remember, this is why Peter, the whole way through this passage, we didn't do every piece of this passage, but the whole way through the passage, Peter keeps reminding them, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is what is certain about you. So what's distracting you from setting your hope in that certainty? Number two, be holy. So what is God asking of you that you find hard to accept? Right? That's what the holiness question is about because we need to accept the things that God is calling us towards. So what is God asking of you that you find hard to accept? Acknowledge those things. And the third question, just for self-evaluation, is this. Clean house. So what root in your heart needs to be dug up? The Bible says that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And so we do none of these things in order to earn one piece of our acceptance before God. Christ did everything for us, but... If you trust in Jesus, you're in his family. And these are his family values. So, so none, of us, none of us is going to represent any of these things perfectly, but by God's grace, we allow these things to describe us. So like when my dad said to me when I was a kid, um, when my dad said to me, hey, what it means to work and to do a job is that you give 100%. He had to tell me that. Because I wasn't giving 100%, right? So, so in me not giving 100%, he doesn't remove me from his family. No, he reminds me, this is what it means to be a part of this family. So be who you are. So, but, uh, so, so by God's grace, this is what we do. We seek to do these things more and more. We seek to be changed by the grace of Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. Because that's who we are. Because we strive to be who we are. So would you pray with me, please? Father, this morning I ask that you would um, that you would bless us, that you would ground us in our hope in Jesus, that we would be firm and steadfast, Lord. That uh, in the midst of all of our trials and temptations, and Lord, uh, in the midst of trying to give any sort of ground to the things that you call us towards, even our temptations to not want to accept the things that you call us toward. Lord Jesus, would you, in the midst of all that, dig up the roots, would do a work in our hearts, in our lives, that we might more fully trust in you, that you would be honored in everything. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name.